0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, this is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode two hundred and fifty-eight. I'm going to k- k- keep this brief because um, it's a long episode, and I've got a bonus episode for you on Friday. Th- things I want to say off the bat, though, um, thank you so much for the reaction to last week's episode. Last week was a very special episode with PC Leon McLeod, who was was one of the first um, three. Uh, on site during the London terror attack, and he gave such an open interview about the effects. More the after effects was the stuff that caught me off guard and surprised me and moved me. So yeah, amazing amazing guest to have, and you guys' reaction was just stunning. A lot of people came back saying that these are the episodes that you love. It's great to have famous people, Hollywood stars, but it's the people have just got these stories that mean the most. The tough thing there is, I'm not going to lie, <coughs> whilst the reaction online is bigger for these names, um, or, or for these people and their stories, the Hollywood stars and whoever else are always going to be the ones that get the most downloads. So it means the world that you share these episodes, because I'm going to keep doing them. Um, and this week is a prime example. I'm joined today by um, a Johan Harry, who's fantastic um he's an author um of several books we focus on his two most recent books we might uh, talk about three in total but he's just an amazing talker um an amazing thinker i really enjoyed this conversation i think we i get asked a lot if i'll do a special on mental health and i never have because it comes up so often and i think the key to mental health whilst i'm a big fan of things like mental health awareness day and all these other things i think the key for me about mental health is that it's not a one-off thing it's not a special episode it's in every episode because it affects so many people in their lives so and this is is, is one of them a, 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 a johan is an expert i guess in depression he tells the story himself of what made him him research the air the 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 subject and where we went around the world on this research so it's a fantastic chat so i won't say too much more but i will tell you i've got a bonus episode on friday um i'm joined by a winston duke star of us uh, uh, which is the is the new film which comes out on friday it's the new film from jordan Peel, the writer and director of get out Uh, winston was also in black panther so we had a lot to talk about it's a great episode. I only recorded it last week, but I've gone str- straight in and uh, I'm releasing it ahead of others. I've got lined up just because it's time sensitive. It's a, it's a bit sh- shorter. So I decided it could be a little bonus episode. So that's cool. Other things I have to, 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 to tell you about my club night is back. Um, I love the I've been doing the club night. I think for n- for nine years now, which is insane for a club night to continue to be successful after that time. But I love that in the last two three years, I'm getting more and more people come up who've heard about it th- through the podcast and come and meet Chris Glasson and, and Stu, a uh, uh, whiff in for, for, from the Hardcore Listing Podcast, who I run the I run the club night with. Yeah, I love you guys coming down. It's it's at the book club in Shoreditch. Um, it's free before nine. It's I think a five or after, and then the price goes up as the night goes on. Come on down, hang out. It'll be, it'll be it'll be lovely to see you all. Earlier you get there, the more time I will have to have photos, to sign stuff. If you want to bring stuff along to be signed, and just hang out. I'm up for that. I'm up for chatting, having a conversation. Obviously, within reason. It's in a it's in a club night. It's how it gets noisy. But yeah, come on down. It's um, s- s- Saturday the thirtieth of March at the book club. Anything else I have to, to tell you about? Oh, we've just had um, our second. Distraction Pieces Rewind episode over at Patreon.com slash Scroobius Pip. That was on Monday. Um, on them episodes, I recap previous episodes and tell behind-the-scenes stories. So um, head over there and check that out. It's only a, do- a dollar a month. Um, it's dirt cheap, right? Um, I, was, I, was, I was thinking the other day, a dollar a month. If you look at Netflix as being, I think it's $8 a month just for... Ease of maths. Let's say it's ten dollars a month. Because yeah, it's like eight ninety nine, and that comes to ten, ten dollars or so. So say it's ten dollars a month. So if you listen to four distraction pieces podcasts a month, then I'm a tenth the price of Netflix, right? So the value would be if on Netflix you watch, so you listen to four of these, so ten, forty episodes of a tv show a month which you might do i probably watch more than that but say you you watch 40 episodes of a tv show a month then that value is the same and that's crazy because netflix is this huge multinational company so to offer the same value of four episodes of the podcast anyway i'm rambling come and join us if you want if you don't don't it's cool it's no big deal i'll leave it at that i'm not going to plug the web store, speechdevelopmentrecords.com or any of that stuff. Um, I'll save that for another time because I'd rather you just jump into this episode and have a listen and, and, and buy a, a Johan's books. He's fantastic. So yes, for now, I'll see you again on, on, on Friday, as said, because there's a bonus episode. This is the rambliest um, intro I've done in a while. I'm going to keep the outro sh- short as well. But anyway, for now, this is episode 258 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Johan Harry. This piece of fiction is the intro of destruction. This piece of fiction is the instrument of destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro of destruction. This piece of fiction is the intro of destruction. Right, I'm joined today by Johan uh, Harry. How are you? I'm very good. I'm happy to be with you. I think we've got a lot to talk about here. You've, you're an author how would you describe what you do yeah and, I write and, books and who yeah. you are yeah you write yeah. books you there's j- 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 journalism in there and there's yeah a lot of, of research and things like that but yeah you've you've had a few books there's we'll probably speak mostly about A Lost Connections but I do want to also talk about uh, ch- Chasing the Scream because there's a lot of subjects in that that cross over with a lot of the work I've done or stuff I've yeah, done totally, on, the totally and totally on the podcast yeah, yeah. yeah. so what would you like to to start with? And uh, which uh, of you two of those two are you most comfortable kind of jumping I think into by first? Now, so
1: one of them, I should say, Lost Connections is about what causes depression and anxiety yes. and what solves them, and Chasing the Scream is about the war on drugs and addiction. Yeah,
0: I think by now I'm pretty easy talking about either. Where do you fancy <laughs> and Lost Connections? or oh, let's start on Lost Connections because it does feel like it was the one that really seemed to propel you in, in into the public eye. I think. I had I had Rutger Bregman on. A while oh, I ago, love Rutger. He's one of my favourite people. He's just amazing. Everyone and listening should read his book Utopia for
1: Realists. Yeah. He's a wonderful human being and just so enlightening. And I, one of the thing's I love about Rutger is he he's a real model of someone who's presenting genuinely radical ideas in ways that anyone could understand. That yeah. are not pretentious. I love Rutger. He's
0: a wonderful. That's what human I loved being. about him. And what I also loved was the fact that he's kind of openly saying like. No, I'm not a revolutionary here. None of you none of this is new. This is stuff that's been tried and tested in yeah, the past yeah. and all these kind of things. And I think what he and you are really good at is presenting these ideas and these and, and, and these thoughts, but in a way that as you said, number one, anyone can understand and, and, and consume. But number two, are adapting t- to the modern world, using social media, using podcasts. I've heard your numerous th- different podcasts. It's kind of Whereas a lot of authors sometimes can be a bit stuck in the traditional ways, you, Rooker, um, David Grieber—is it Grieber or Grieber? I think it's Graeber, Gra- but I could R- be wrong. Graeber, are people who they seem to be also brilliant. Yeah. yeah, who seem to be people who are going, "Look, here's my ideas," but also, I'm not going to be pretentious about it. I want as many people to hear about this as possible. Yeah, this it's not is, for yeah. dusty academics. It's For humans. This is totally important to... Both my parents left
1: school when they were 15. All four of my grandparents had left school by the time they were 14. Uh, Actually, all three of the four. You know, um, I was the first person in my family to go to a fancy university or anything like that. And I get to investigate complex subjects but I'm always thinking could my nan have understood what I'm saying could my mum understand what I'm saying could my dad understand what I'm saying it's very important to me to me I forget who said this um I don't want to get the person wrong but someone said it brilliantly they said um some people think that cleverness lies in making simple things incomprehensible. True cleverness lies in making complex things comprehensible, right? And to me, I think there's always, and I feel that temptation myself, so I'm not standing above it. There's a temptation to show off cleverness, right? And to me, every time I hear that in my head, I'm like, okay, do you want to show off cleverness? Or do you want to, actually do something that's valuable, that reaches people about something that's important. Yeah, And I always try to, and one of the things whenever I give my books, I've written, finished my books and I give them to people. First thing I always say, they say, what do you want me to comment on? I said, if there is ever any sentence you don't understand, if there's anything that's unclear or confuses you, tell me and I will keep rephrasing
0: it until you can understand it, yeah. right? Oh, oh, one of my key things when starting the podcast was being adamant that I will play the kind of, the kind of Alan Davies role. And I think Alan Davis on QI... Not biting
1: the ear off a tramp, I hope. No, but, uh... <laughs> no, 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 no. But
0: his his role on, 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 on QI is that, I mean, Alan's a very in- intelligent guy, but he's there for when we're watching at home and it all gets really confusing. And we're n- nodding along, but maybe not understanding. He's there to go, I don't understand that, and have yeah. it explained. And I think that's a key role in podcasting. It's really easy, particularly, I, I remember when I had saw Williams on it was t- tested the most because he's a, r- a rapper and poet but amazingly intelligent articulate historian in many ways and he's someone I also think is really cool so I didn't w- want to look stupid in front of him but, but, but I had to be adamant that any time I don't understand something or a tangent he's gone off on I need to say can you explain that a little bit because because that's what the listeners need. And to, I, I don't want totally everyone right. just, just sitting and going, oh, we're all in on this, when really n- none of us are, are in on it.
1: I think that's totally right. And I think also, in a way, the reason I, with both my books, the reason I wrote them is because there was something I didn't understand that I wanted yeah. to understand. So I went and, sp- so I'll give you an example with, with Lost Connections. There were these two kind of mysteries that I'd I'd been thinking about for a long time and I was quite frightened to look at, if I'm honest, which is, the first is... I'm 40 years old in a few days Mm -hmm. and every year that I've been, almost every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased here in Britain and across the Western world. And I was thinking like, why? Mm. Why is this happening to us? Why is it getting worse year after year? What's going on here? And I wanted to understand that because of a second mystery, which was more personal, which is when I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I remember you know, feeling really ashamed about it, but, but trying to explain that I had this feeling like pain was kind of leaking out of me and I yeah. couldn't control it or, or, or regulate it, didn't understand it. And my doctor told me a story about what, why I felt that way that I now realise was really oversimplified. He said, um, well, scientists have figured out why people feel this way. There's a, a chemical called serotonin in people's brains that makes them feel good. Some people naturally have an imbalance or lack of it. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you these drugs, you're going to feel better. So I started taking an antidepressant called Ciroxac and I did feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. And then a few months later, this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor, said, oh, I didn't give you a high enough dose, took a high dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the feeling of pain came back and I was really in this cycle of taking the maximum possible dose, uh, jacking up my dose until I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years, at the end of which I still felt like shit. So I was trying to think, well... How does that story my doctor told me, which I now realise, by the way, is not what scientists have found and not what they think, that it's just a biological problem in our brains, how does that fit with the fact that it's been rising so much? It can't be that all of our brains just started to malfunction. There must be something else going on here, right? So exactly as you're saying, that kind of open way of trying to ask these questions was exactly... I thought, okay, you have to not be afraid to be stupid and you have to not...
0: That and going on the journey yourself, I think, is what's great. Again, about how you get things across, is it's not going. Here are all the answers. It's going. Here's the questions I started with, and exactly. here's what I found along and the way. Rather that... than here's just the, here's the solution. It's like
1: it, exactly uh, here's what I've learned. Whenever I do a book, and I'm obviously working on one at the moment. Whenever I do a book, what I do is I write out a list of questions to myself. Right, yeah. what do you want to understand? And then I just look up. So in Lost Connections, for example, I ended up travelling over 40,000 miles. I wanted to interview the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. But I also wanted to meet people with just really different perspectives, from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have really low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelics to see if that would help. And I think there's something about exactly that process of... So the hardest bit, I think, is the first bit where you, if you've got a story about why you're in pain, even if that story isn't working very well for you, and that story was not working well for me, at least you feel like you know where you are. Yeah, you've
0: got a solution. You've got a, you know what's
1: wrong. Well, it's almost like if the pain is like a rabid dog, at least it's on a leash, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a moment in the dismantling of the story, and this was true also in my book about addiction, that, that... there's a moment in the dismantling of the story where you feel incredibly vulnerable and raw because the moment where you think, well, fuck, if I don't understand why this is happening to me, you're, you're just very vulnerable. You're like, yeah. well, wh- what the fuck can I do then? Right. Yeah. I think there were many difficult things that I learned in the process of doing Lost Connections, but the hardest bit was the first bit, which was to discover, um, there's a much, there's a more, and it's only a very small part of the book, but to discover that, there, that there's a, how do I put it? So I I learned from the leading experts in the world that there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety that we know of. There may be others that haven't yet been discovered. I'm sure there will be. But nine causes. Two of them are in fact biological. They're not just a chemical imbalance in your brain, but they are in our biology. Mm. There's real biological causes of depression and anxiety that are very significant, that need to be understood, and that I talk about in Lost Connections. Um, But most of the factors that are causing depression and anxiety are not in our biology, they're in how we live, right? They're in our psychology and they're in the way we live as a society. And that helps us to understand why it's rising, right? Because our biology hasn't changed in the last 30 years, but the way we live together has significantly. Um, And so it was when I got into the specifics of that and then to me, the most important thing is if you don't understand what's genuinely causing your problem you can't actually find the solutions you'll become trapped in that problem or you yeah. may well be right so once you understand the different causes it leads to an un- a different understanding of the solutions right so yeah. i'll give you an example of a speak cause that's just one of the easiest to explain and i think everyone will immediately understand right we are the loneliest society there's ever been. We're sure. just behind the Americans in the International League Tables of Loneliness. And in the US, there's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing the study years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? Mm. Half of all Americans asked how many people know you well, say nobody. Wow. Wow. I spent a lot of time talking to this amazing man who sadly just died, actually, called Professor John Cassiopo, who was at the University of Chicago and who's the leading expert in loneliness in the world. And he said to me, you know, why are we alive? Why do we exist? One of the reasons we're alive, everyone listening to this is alive, is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. But they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating. Yeah, Just like bees evolved to live in a hive, humans evolved to live in a tribe. And if you think about those circumstances where we evolved, if you were cut off from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really fucking good reason. You were about to die, right? Yeah, yeah. You were in terrible danger. So these are the impulses we have as a species. Um, and we are the first humans ever to try to live without tribes. Mm. And it makes us feel terrible right i hope we get chance to talk about the solution to that particular aspect but the one of the really important things i remember thinking when i spoke to professor cassiopo and lots of the other experts was realizing if you are told your pain is just a result of your biology what you're effectively telling people is you're like a machine with a broken part right and all you can do is drug yourself and the drugs have some value to be sure but what when you understand let's think about loneliness and obviously we'll talk about some of the other causes what you realise is, oh, actually, this person is depressed and anxious, is acutely lonely.
0: Their pain makes sense. They're not a it's, machine. Yeah. It's absolutely key. I think uh, one of the things that's been the problem with the, the rise in awareness of, um, of depression, of these things being something that doesn't have to j- just be accepted, it can be worked into and against, is the fact that it's then given us that idea that if you feel bad, it's because you're broken or because you've got this issue. And, and there's a lot of... It's going to sound really weird, but there's a lot of good good reasons to feel bad. So sometimes it doesn't, It's it's often it's a natural reaction to what's going on around you at the time. And that's not to say it should be ignored, but it's It's also not... opposite of saying it should be We can
1: only deal with it. In fact, we we will ignore it if we say, oh, it's just a, it's purely a biological problem. We can only deal with it when people understand your pain has meaning. It is a signal. It's a signal that something has gone profoundly wrong with the way we live. Not with you, not, yeah. you as a broken, not you as a broken person, but the fact that it's rising in so many people helps us to understand something's going wrong with the way we live yeah. and we can fix that. So I'll give you an example with loneliness, a very a concrete example. One of the heroes of my book is a man called Dr. Sam Everington, yeah. who's a doctor in East London, poor part of East London where I lived for a long time. Sadly, he was never my doctor. And Sam, a GP, and he had loads of people coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he thinks there's some value for chemical antidepressants. But he could also see, A, exactly what we're saying, they were depressed for a reason. And B, the drugs were giving them some relief, but most of them were remaining pretty depressed. So he decided to pioneer a different approach. One day, a woman came to see him, who I got to know quite well later, called Lisa Cunningham. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of right. what it was like. Yeah, yeah. Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is come and turn up a couple of times a week. We'll meet on Dogshit Alley. I'm going to come too because I've been quite anxious. We're going to meet with another group a group of other depressed and anxious people and together we're going to find something to do together, right? Yeah. First time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. Wow, yeah. But something happened. These... Groups started doing. They're like, what could we do together? They decided they were going to learn gardening. They were going to turn Dogshit Alley into a garden, right? Yeah. These are inner city EastEnders like me don't know anything about gardening, right? Yeah, yeah. They said, okay, we're going to start reading about it. We're going to start learning about it. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a huge amount of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But something as important started to happen. They started to form a tribe. They started to care about each other. Yeah. They started to notice if one of them wasn't there and go and look for them and say, what's wrong? What? They started to solve each other's problems. So I'll give you an extreme example from the group. One of the guys in the group was uh, really depressed. He was sleeping on the night bus. He'd been thrown out of his home and he was sleeping on the night bus. The drivers would just let him sleep on the bus. Yeah. And everyone else in the group was like, well, obviously you're depressed if you're sleeping on the bus, mate. They, so they started to pressure the local council, Tower Hamlets, to get him a flat. It was the first time any of them had done something for someone else in years and years. And they said that act of doing something for someone else made them feel really good. The way Lisa put it, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. And there was a study in Norway of a very similar program, which was part of a growing body of evidence, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants, right? And this is something I saw all over the world. And this was the last third of my book is about these solutions that I saw all over the world. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we're depressed and anxious in the first place. But I can totally understand why that seems so daunting to so many people because it was profoundly daunting to me when I was depressed, which is that is precisely the moment when you feel least able to change your
0: life, right? Yeah. yeah. So if it sounds like something And when you're, s- you're given s- solutions, they seem the least viable. even Even when it does sound as simple as these groups or interacting. It's like that seems completely out of reach and, and and unobtainable. Exactly. I
1: think that's a really good way of putting it. But I think part of the problem is we've become so immersed in this deeply individualistic way of thinking, right? That So when we were kids, you know, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society, there's only individuals and their families, right? Yeah. And part of what all the best evidence shows us is the way we live together, the society has gone wrong, right? In all sorts of ways, lots of good things about it, but it's gone wrong in all sorts of ways. And that's the key, one of the key reasons, not the only one by any means, uh, why the, this depression, anxiety and addiction epidemics are happening, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can only see the world through the prism of individuals, that's going to be very hard to understand because a lot of people here, so a lot of people have been told, there's two ways to think about depression, implicitly they've been told this, either you're biologically broken
2: mm-hmm.
1: or it's your fault, mate. You're weak, you're thick, you yep. need to pull yourself together, right? And if someone comes along and says, there's some real biological components to be sure, but actually this is largely the result of these ni- these seven other factors that are playing out around us. What a lot of people hear is, if you're saying the biology has over- is real but it's been overstated, what a lot of people at first think is, fuck, so you're saying it's my fault and I've got to solve it, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, that's not at all what I'm saying. Sam wasn't saying to Lisa hey, listen, you're lazy. You've got to pull yourself together. On the contrary, it was about giving people very practical solutions. There was someone who really helped me to think about this. When I was in that funk of realising, oh, the biology has been overstated. Uh, Chemical antidepressants give some people some relief. They have real value. But for most of us, they're not solving the problem. I'm feeling really low and thinking, oh, fuck, you know, how am I going to get out of this? And I went to see this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who really helped me to click something in my head. So Derek was in Cambodia in two thousand. I think the year two thousand or two thousand and one, when they first introduced chemical antidepressants in that country. Just right. by coincidence, he was doing some other medical research, and the local doctors, the Cambodian doctors, were like, "What? What? What are antidepressants?" They hadn't heard of them. Yeah. So, sat, uh, so, so um, Doctor S- S- Doctor Summerfield explained, and they said to him, "Oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants." And he said, "What do you mean?" He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy like yeah. St John's Wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day had stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. It was a landmine left over by the American invasion. Wow. And they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's very, traum- uh, it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. Right. I'm guessing it's traumatic for obvious reasons. This guy got blown up there. Yeah. He started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed. He developed classic depression. And they said to to, to Dr. Summerfield, that's when we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realised that his pain made sense, that it had causes in his life. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was fucking him up so much. Mm. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a couple of months, his depression was gone. They said to Dr. Summerfield, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organisation, has been trying to tell us for years – we are depressed and anxious for reasons, as, the, as they put it on World Health Day last year, or two years ago now, because it's 2019, now, so 2017, they said um, we need to talk less about chemical imbalances, more about power imbalances. Yeah. We need to talk about imbalances in the way we're living, as well as the real biological components. Um, but that's a very different way of thinking. So a big part of what I was trying to explore, I remember him saying that to me, thinking, walking out and thinking, okay, what's the cow for the things that are making us depressed? Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And, 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 and that's what's what's great about that story is it really just sums up how sadly in the, in the Western world, we've kind of built a society where we want to know what the fix is, what the one stop answer to any problem is. And depression is something that's far more nuanced than that. And there isn't an easy fix. Um, And that's hard for people to get their head around that you will, you might go to therapy and it might not be the right therapist for you. It might not be the right doctor. You might, have medication and again it's it it should be clear as well i know you've had kind of backlash of people thinking that you're very anti-chemical antidepressants but it's just it's not a a one-stop shop or a a fix-all solution there's many other there's there's, for some people again i've known people i was quite anti-medical antidepressants for a long time because a friend of mine when we were younger um was put on them And they didn't help. And he, again, I want to talk more about the seeing the problem and seeing a solution. He couldn't see a solution. And he decided that if he wasn't okay by his 21st birthday, he would end his life. And he wasn't, and he did. And it was, it felt to a young man, to all his friends at the time, well, he's been cheated by bad doctors, by bad doctors who have given him this drug that they think is the solution, it's making it worse. And it took a lot of distance from that personal experience to realise. Right, no, it just didn't work for him. That doesn't mean that medication isn't right for anyone. For some yeah. people, it is that that instant switch in the chemicals, and for some, it isn't. So, I think that's something that that story illustrates perfectly that we miss hugely over here. That everyone wants everyone wants to buy a book that has the one answer in. Well, I think people, but are, you can't. People, you can have many suggestions.
1: I think that's a really that's a really moving story, and I think people are right to want a solution, right? Mm. We absolutely mm. desperately need solutions to depression. I 100%. agree with that. And, and and to be fair to them, the people who claimed that I was attacking, you know, saying everyone should stop chemical antidepressants did admit they hadn't read my book. So it's weird to be like, it's a funny thing when you write a book that's discussed on social media, it's like alongside your book, there's a kind of shadow book, which is created, which is yeah. like consists of all the things people who haven't read your book, imagine you are saying, Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but, but I understand, I think, it's really important to talk in a nuanced way about chemical antidepressants because the truth is a little bit complicated and only a small part of how we should be dealing with depression and anxiety. So to me, I guess the the two most important things I would explain about chemical antidepressants are two pieces of research. Um, The first is, so depression is generally measured by something... Called the Hamilton scale, right? I've always right. felt really sorry for whoever Hamilton was that we only remember yeah. him by how miserable we all are. But it goes from one where you would be dancing around in ecstasy to fifty-one where you would be acutely suicidal, right? So, so one where
0: you're like the stage play Hamilton, <laughs> and one where you're not like the stage <laughs> yeah, you're an play. emo band, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. You picture two rival theatres, right? Exactly, um, and yeah, and and to give you a sense of movement on the Hamilton scale, on average. Uh, if you improve your sleep patterns, you'll gain six points on the Hamilton scale, right? right? So according to the best research by the leading expert at Harvard Medical School, who got hold of all the data, not just the data that the um, drug companies put into the public domain, um, on average, over time, chemical antidepressants will move you 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale, right? right? So... It's important to say a few things about that. That's an average. So I initially got a lot more. Over time, I got less. Yeah. Um. And it's important to say, 1.8 points is not nothing,
0: yeah. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: For some people, that will be the thing that takes them off the ledge. But you can also see 1.8 points is not solving the problem for most people, right? Yeah.
0: Um, which fits with the fact that we know... It's, be- it's, it's helping, but it's not what we're necessarily led to believe it's doing, which is exactly. something we're going to come back to when we talk about your first book, because of yeah. the the myths around addiction and things like that. But but yeah, yeah, it's that weird thing that is, yeah, you can't dismiss it because when you're in one of those places, a 1.8 could, without any exaggeration, be life-saving.
1: Exactly, and has been life-saving for some people, but also worth saying... That also comes alongside very powerful side effects, which can be horrendous for some people. For me, I gained a huge amount of weight, like 70% of men who take these drugs It affected my sexual functioning some of the time. Uh, There's all sorts of side effects as well. But many people, the side effects will outweigh that benefit. It's also worth looking at one other... Well, there's lots of... Everyone should look at all the research, but I'd also highlight one other really important piece of research, which is um, something called the STAR-D trial. It's really simple. They follow people who go to the doctor and say, I'm depressed, please give me help. And they follow them over a long period of time to see what happens when they give them the drug. And, you know, are they still depressed? What the STAR-D trial found is most people given chemical antidepressants do become depressed again. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no value in them. There is some value in them. But it tells us what I think is kind of pretty banal insight, which is it's not solving the problem for most of us, right? Mm. It's giving some relief, but precisely because most of the problem is not biological for most depressed and anxious people, some aspect of biology to be sure, um, just trying to deal with the biology in the rather crude way that chemical antidepressants do isn't solving the problem for for most people. Now, there will be some people whose problem is solved that way and to them I have nothing to offer but love and congratulations. But we can see that it's not solving the problem because, I mean, look around us. For the last 30 years, every year we've been massively increasing chemical antidepressant prescriptions. And every year we've done it, depression and anxiety have increased. Now, they're not rising because of the chemical antidepressants. Chemical antidepressants are helping a bit. But there's something missing in this picture, right? Yeah. And what's missing in this picture is the actual causes of depression and anxiety in the way we live and how we deal with them. And that's really the subject of, of, of my book, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's 90% of what I wanted to look at. Yeah,
0: it's and it's, it's fascinating because... W- Social media has come up a couple of times mm. in this conversation, positively and, and negatively, which is, is quite apt, really, because of <laughs> because of the, the beast that it is. But you discussed how one of the key things can be being able to see what the problem is. And it strikes me that social media can be a smokescreen or something in the way of that at times. Um, at the moment, I would say we are at the highest point ever of people that feel politicized, yet not necessarily at the highest point of people who are actually actually educated on the political topics that they 're discussing and passionate about, so it 's a balance it 's good that people feel passionate, but similar with your book it 's bad that they 're not necessarily there there's there 's as there 's a shadow version of your book that appears there 's a shadow version of the political systems that appears that you think you know what you 're angry about but the thing that struck me in this is if one of the leading f- factors is is loneliness and one of the biggest problems we're f- facing is loneliness, it's also going to be one that's harder to identify because we have these fictional friendships and popularities and interactions and connections. And again, there are positives. The fact is we are more connected than we have ever been and we have the opportunity to connect to more people, like-minded people all around the world than we have ever been. But... That doesn't re- remove the loneliness or the issue of loneliness, and if anything, it could kind of, as I said, put a smoke screen over it, to make you not realise how how lonely a world you're living in or, or or you're part of.
1: I wanted to think about this a lot, so for the book, I went to the first ever internet rehab centre in the world. It's right. just it's um it's in, just outside Spokane in Washington State, and I just funny, I remember it's it's a clear it's in a clearing in the woods, and I remember getting out of the car. And as I did, absolutely instinctively looking at my phone and being really pissed off that I had no reception to check my emails. And I thought, Oh wait, you're in the right fucking place. right?" Yeah. 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 So I arrived there and and it's, (laughs) it's really fascinating because it's run by this woman called Dr. Hilary Cash. She's a really, you should have her on your show. She's totally fascinating woman. Um, and, they get all kinds of people in, it's called Restart Washington, this place, and they get all kinds of people, but they disproportionately get young men who've become obsessed with multiplayer role play games like World of Warcraft and Fortnite. Fortnite didn't actually exist when I was there, but I'm sure they're getting a lot of Fortnite people now. And I remember talking to a lot of these young men who were there, and Dr Cash saying to me, you've got to ask yourself, what are these young men getting out of these games? Right, because they're getting something out of it. They're getting the things they used to get from the culture, but they no longer get. They're getting a sense of connection. They've got friends, right? They're getting a physical space to be. They're getting a sense they roam around. Today, the average British child now spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner because by law, maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day. It's insane, isn't it? They're getting a sense that they're good at something, right? They're getting a sense they can rise and gain status in an economy and society that's not offering them very much of that, right? But what they're getting is like a parody of that. I remember talking to them and starting to think about this and thinking, in a way, I think the relationship between social media and social life is like the relationship between porn and sex, right? Right. I'm not anti-porn. I look at porn sometimes like all men, but no one spends like an hour looking at porn and at the end of it, Feels like valued and yeah. sated and yeah, held yeah, the way yeah. you do after you've had sex, at least if it goes well, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and in a similar way, because we because we didn't evolve to like wank over screens, right? We evolved to have sex. Yeah. In a similar way, you know, you and I could be doing this interview over Skype, right? And you yeah. know very well from doing interviews, people say to me, "Why did you travel to all these places? Why didn't you just talk to them on Skype?" Because you don't you
0: get like ten percent on Skype compared to what you get face to face, right? I'm, I'm currently in negotiations I've been offered I can't say who but the biggest guest I've ever had oh. but they want to do it over the phone so I'm b- begging them to let me fly to that guest because the guest was going to be coming to the UK but now they're not and I was literally I was like look it might work over the phone but if there's any way I can just go to them because of exactly that and it seems st- stupid to say well you'll get the interview anyway it's like no being in the room and with that person the only ones I've done over Skype are with people who are really good friends of mine. Because I know there's already that connection. And we've broken that. And this is
1: exactly, I think, what social media offers, although it has some value, is a kind of parody of connection, when people have a desperate hunger. And think about the moment when the internet arrives, right? For most people, it arrives in the late 90s, early 2000s. And a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections were already supercharged by then, right?
0: Yeah.
1: So there's already this hole. And what the internet does is it arrives... And it looks a lot like the things we've lost, right? You've lost friends, here's Facebook friends. You've lost status, here's status updates. But but it, but it's not those things. And this goes to, I think, one of the things that connects, not all, but a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about, which are, and that I was taught about, which are, everyone listening to your show knows they have natural physical needs, right? Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be fucked, right? Yeah. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. Right. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things. I'm genuinely glad to be alive today. Yeah. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. If you think about what we were just saying about the internet and Skype... I feel, we feel, we're sitting here opposite each other in my front room. We feel that we're seeing each other, right? I don't feel that I'm being seen when I talk to someone on Skype. You don't feel heard in the same way, right? Uh, Two hours in the pub or wherever you are with your friends is very different to two hours on WhatsApp with your friends. We didn't evolve. Our needs are not met. Our, our deepest needs are not met by that, Professor Cassiopo, the wonderful loneliness expert I mentioned in Chicago, said to me that it was a good like little rule of thumb. He said, "If the social media and the internet is a way is a, a way station to staying in touch with and meeting people offline, then it 's a good thing
0: if it 's the last
1: stop on the line most of the time, something 's gone wrong
0: that 's what I find fascinating about it is everything there. As you say, if it's in place of these things, it's n- negative. But as you kind of touched upon, it's already stuff that was on the decline anyway. So if it's a, if, if without social media, we still wouldn't have this interaction, then it'd be a worse a, a situation. You know, if it's a choice between no interaction and this simulated, synthetic interaction then that's probably a good thing. But it's when it, as said, it's when it crosses that line, perfectly put there, that it becomes the the final destination and the meet-up is purely on a phone rather than, yeah. Can I tell you about, uh,
1: obviously for the book, I was taught loads of things by loads of experts and I go through a lot of the scientific evidence, but I think one of the places that taught me something so deep about depression and that relates to what you're asking about um, was somewhere where they're not scientists at all. And if it's like, I'll tell you the story yeah, of it because right. I think it would really help, uh, help us think about this. So in, in the summer of 2011, a woman on a big council estate in Berlin called Nuria Chengis climbed out of her wheelchair and she put a sign in her window. She lives on the ground floor, Nuria. And the sign said, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted from my flat next Thursday. So on Wednesday night, I'm going to kill myself. Now, this is a, a council estate in a slightly weird part of Berlin. It's a poor part. It's called Kotti, And basically only three, because no one really wanted to live there, only three groups of people lived there. There were Muslim immigrants like Nuria. There were um, punk squatters who moved into like the abandoned houses. And there were gay men. And as you can imagine, these three groups looked at each other with a lot of incomprehension. Yeah. No one knew each other. It was kind of a lo- very lonely place, a lot of depression. And people saw this sign in Nuria's window. And they started to knock on her door and they were like, are you okay? And she was like, fuck you, I don't want to help. I'm going to kill myself, shot the door in their faces. Lots of people in this council estate were pissed off themselves because their rents were going up. Lots of people were being evicted. They knew that this was coming for them next, many of them. And one of them one day, uh, they got chatting outside her flat, people who didn't know each other. And one of them one day had an idea. There's a big thoroughfare that goes into the center of Berlin that runs through Coty. And one of them said, you know, if we just block the road on a Saturday, and we wheel Nuria out and we protest and make a fuss. The media will probably come. They probably let Nuria stay in her flat. There might even be a bit of pressure to keep our rents down. Why don't we do it? So the Saturday came and like a load of them decided to do it. They go and block the road. And Nuria was like, well, I'm going to f- kill myself. I may as well let them wheel me into the fucking road. So she comes out. <laughs> she sits there. The media do come. Nouria is slightly bemused. She does these interviews. And then it gets to the end of the day. And the police say, OK, you've had your fun. Take all this shit down. Go home. And the people who live in Cotia said, well, hang on a minute, you haven't told us Nuria gets to stay. And actually what we want is a rent freeze for this whole council estate. So once we've got those guarantees, then we'll take this down. But of course they knew the minute they left this little makeshift barricade they'd made, the police would just tear it down. And yeah. So one of my favourite people in Cotia, a woman called Tanya Gartner, she's one of the punk, uh, punk squatters. She wears tiny little miniskirts, even in Berlin winter. She's hardcore. Uh, <laughs> Tanya had, had an idea. In her flat, she had a klaxon, you know, those things that make loud noises. Mm-hmm. At, um- so, she went and got it and she came down and she said, what we're going to do is we're going to drop a timetable to man this barricade. It's going to be manned 24 hours a day till Nuria gets told she can stay and we all get told we've got a rent freeze. Um, and if the police come to take it down any time of day or night, let off this klaxon and we'll all come down from our flats and we'll stop them, right? So people enraged about their own rents, they start to sign up to man the barricade and people get paired with someone they've never met before. So Nuria, very religious Muslim, full hijab, gets paired with Tanya in her tiny little miniskirt. <laughs> And I forget what night shift they had, but they would sit there through the nights. And, you know, at first Tanya and Nuria were like, we've got fucking nothing to talk about, right? right. What, what can we talk about? And they sit there and the first few nights are super awkward. And then they started to talk in the cold in Cotty or through the night. And they discovered they had something incredibly powerful in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 16 years old from her village in Turkey with her two young children and her job was to raise enough money to send back for her husband to also come and join them
2: mm-hmm.
1: and sitting there she told Tanya something she'd never told anyone in Germany her husband after she'd been there for a year and a half she got news from home that her husband had died and she'd always told people in Germany that her husband died of a heart attack and she told Tanya the truth which is that her husband had died of tuberculosis which was seen as like a shameful disease of poverty and that's when Tanya told Nuria something she never talked about and um, she explained that she'd come to live in Cotty when she, she was also 16. She'd been thrown out by a middle-class family. She'd come, she lived in a squat. Uh, she got pregnant almost as soon as she got there. They realised that they'd both been in this very similar situation. They'd been in this area with, they'd been children with children themselves in a place they didn't understand. They started to realise how much they had in common. Yeah. Um, directly opposite this, this, this housing project, there's a a gay club called Zudblock that opened a couple of years before it began. And it's run by a guy I love called Rickard Steinman. Um it's a pretty hardcore gay club to give you a sense of what it's like. The previous place Rickard owned was called Cafe Anal, right? right? And and as you can imagine when this
0: <laughs> That's on the nose. Yeah, yeah, you
1: wouldn't want a sandwich from Cafe Anal, no. right? But when they <laughs> when they opened this club initially, a couple of years before the protest, as you can imagine, there's a lot of religious Muslims there. People some people were really angry, their windows had been smashed. When the protest began, they gave all their uh, furniture to the to the protest they and they started after a while they started saying you know you could have all your meetings here we'll give you drinks we'll give you food yeah. and even the lefties at Cotty were like look we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have um, political meetings underneath posters for like fisting night right it's not going to happen yeah. it did start to happen one of the Turkish oh, German women there said to me we all realized we had to take these small steps to understand each other and um, after the protest had been going on for about a year, so it was really hardcore. One day, a, a guy turned up at a called Tunkai. He was in his early fifties, and when you meet Tunkai, it's clear he's got some kind of cognitive difficulties. He'd been living homeless, but he's got an amazing energy about him. He started asking if he could help, and by this time, they had actually turned their protest barricade into a permanent structure. Those of them are construction workers. Amazing. And after a while, they, because everyone loved Tunkai, he immediately united the gays, the Muslims, and the and the punks. Um, they started saying to him, well, you shouldn't, we don't want you to be homeless. You should live in this thing we've built, right? So he started living there. He became a much loved part of the protest camp. And nine months later, one day, the police came. And they would come and inspect every now and then. And Tunkai Kai doesn't like it when people argue. So he went, he thought the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug one of the police officers. But they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. Right. That was when it was discovered Tonkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital, often literally in a padded cell for 20 years. He'd escaped one day, he'd lived on the streets for a month and then he found his way to Kotti. So they took him back to this psychiatric hospital right at the other side of Berlin, at which point the whole of the Kotti protest movement turned into a kind of free Tonkai movement, right? They descend on this psychiatric hospital and these psychiatrists are like, what is this? There's this bunch of like very camp gay men, women in hijabs and punks <laughs> p- demanding the release of this person they've had shut away for so long. But I remember Uli Hartman, one of the protesters said to them, you know, but you don't love him. He doesn't belong with you. Yeah. We love him. He belongs with us. Anyway, lots of things happened at Cotty. Um They got Tunkai back. It took a while. He Amazing. lives there still. Um, I guess the headline is they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. Um, they then launched a referendum initiative to keep rents down across Berlin. that got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. Wow. But I remember the last time I saw Nuria her saying to me like, you know, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my neighbourhood. That's brilliant. I gained so much more than that. Yeah. I was surrounded by these incredible people all along and I never knew. And I remember one of the other Turkish-German women, um, Neriman Tanker saying to me something that really stayed with me. She said, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, I grew up in a village and I called my whole village home. And then I came to live in the Western world. And I learned that what we're meant to call home here is just your four walls. Yeah. And then this protest began and I started to call all these people and this whole place my home. And I realized in some sense I had been homeless all these years. I had been living in the Western world that, that, I mean, this is me saying it now, not her, but that, that, the society we've built does not provide us with a sense of belonging and home. Um, Alexander Heyman, the Bosnian writer, said, home is where people notice when you're not there. Yeah. Right? And, and it was so clear to me in Cotty, so many of the things that I'd learned from these scientists, that these people, think about how distressed they were. Nuria was about to kill herself. Tunkai was shut away in a padded cell. Loads of these people were depressed and anxious. <laughs> In the main, they did not need to be drugged. They needed to be together. They needed to know they were loved and valued. They needed to have a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Mm. And Tanya, I remember one time sitting with Tanya outside Ziblock, the gay club, and her saying to me, you know, when you feel like shit and you're all alone, you think there's something wrong with you. But what we did is we came out of our corner fighting and we realised we were surrounded by people who felt the same way. Yeah. And, and to me, that's that's the most powerful insight is to say you are surrounded by people who feel like this. This is not a flaw in you. There, yeah. may, there are some biological aspects that may be making you more sensitive to this, but this is not a problem with you. This is largely a problem with the way you've been treated and the way we're living. And we can change that, right?
0: Yeah, I love it. Are two things that jump out at me there. Number one, I just, aside from the mental health side of it, I love that in Europe, When they protest, they protest. (laughs) France has been known for this for years, and Germany and all sorts, that rather than, in the UK, we get a permit to protest in a place that isn't going to be too inconvenient for anyone, (laughs) and then we go there and we protest and then we leave. It's like, why are the people you're protesting are the ones who are giving you the permit to say, it's okay to protest on this day at this place. No, that's not a protest. That's, That's them placating you. And patting you on the head and making you feel that's that's them allowing the sheep to, to have a vote on on what the wolves are having for dinner. That's 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 all that's yeah. happening there. But the other thing that it, it made me think of um, the story of was it Tunkai was the guy yeah, who yeah. was in the who was locked up. It made me think of my f- favourite film of all time, Harvey, which is oh, a yeah. film from the nineteen fifties. With and it feels so re- relevant now because that film comes to that exact point at the end. It goes. He's not like most of us. There's something going on chemically or whatever else, but we love him. And he's 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 fine as he is. He's not broken. He's just different to, to what society would say is the norm. And that's why that film comes to the conclusion of it. It's like, he's better here with people who love him than they're locked in a cell with people who don't understand. And... God bless them, are trying to figure out, are trying to understand, are doing their best. Again, this shouldn't be a demonising of of the health systems and things like that, because it is a complex area. And, you know, my sister is a psychiatric nurse in one of the poorest
1: parts of Britain. Um, You know, she's saving people's lives. It's not about demonising that system. And by the way, there are lots of people in that system who want to do better and know that talking only in terms of the biology is really simplistic and actually cuts people off from more meaningful stories. But, but, we've only given them one lever to pull, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, they are being confronted with terribly distressed people and we actually give them two levers most of the time. They can pull one lever and give people drugs, which do give some people some relief along with causing other people problems. Uh, And they can give people cognitive behavioural therapy, which has some good practitioners, but is based on the philosophy that the problem is basically in your thinking patterns. I mean, think about that guy in Cambodia his problem wasn't in his thinking patterns. His problem was he needed a fucking cow, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. there are real problems with people's thinking patterns in some cases, and that does help. I'm not dissing CBT, but again, you can see those are quite small parts of the story. Now, if you had a place that could offer people chemical antidepressants for the people who need it, can offer them, you know, CBT, if that's the help, can offer them much more extensive forms of therapy to deal with things like childhood trauma, which is one of the most important parts of the book. And I think for me personally, it was the hardest to learn about. Um, or Sam Everington's options, like lots of collective groups that you can yeah. join. And we had a society that was determined to reduce the causes of depression and anxiety. That's a kind of holistic, broader way of dealing with these problems yeah. that would actually reduce
0: it over time, right? Yeah. It, it makes me feel, and this, this might seem like a leap or a change of subject now, but it makes me feel that there's one of the problems with the Western world is the way we run a lot of our educations. System, because that's the root of where we, of how we approach problems, right? That's, and because our education system is so much built on, here's the question, here's the answer, everything else is wrong. The I can't remember who it was, but I saw Killer Mike, who I've had on the podcast. I love it. I was on an amazing panel on a new show in America, and one of the the amazing women on there said the problem with the education system is we should be teaching kids how to think, not what to think. Totally. And I think that just summed it up beautifully. And that feels like the issue here is we do, even by default, when you get into those problems, you're like, so what's the solution? There should be an answer. And the health system has said, a given two options, here's, our, here's the two levers that we can pull, rather than, number one, the people going in being aware that you can't just go in expecting a solution, which is what we expect of a lot of the... The medical uh, well, a, a system I, I, in this country is here is my illness fixed. So I would put it differently.
1: You deserve a solution. We can find solutions together, but they lie in acknowledging the complexity of the problem and finding complex solutions, yes. right? And we actually do and do that. Personal solutions. Exactly. It's, it's individual. Exactly. And as a society, we actually do have complex responses to lots of problems. Think about the thing that kills the most people in Britain, or one of the, one of the highest, car accidents, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we could say with car accidents, and we in fact did say this for the first like couple of decades cars existed, we said, okay, you've got cars, there's going to be accidents, it's the job of people in casualty departments to patch up the catastrophe when it happens, yeah. and those doctors are heroic. We don't now say that. Of course, doctors in casualty are brilliant people, they do really important work, but that is not the biggest th- It's way down on the list of the most important things we do about car accidents. What do we do? We have driving tests, we have seatbelts, we have airbags. We arrest people who are drunk when they're driving. There's a whole range of things we do. Precisely because car accidents are a collective problem, we have collective solutions. And then when some people are mangled terribly in car accidents, we do the individual thing of piecing them together, giving them physio. But that's very low down on the list. In the same way, precisely because depression and anxiety have social causes... Mm. We need to have social solutions. I'll give you a very, it can sound a bit weird and fancy and abstract. I'll give you a very concrete example. In the 1970s, in Canada, the, uh, the Canadian government decided to do an experiment. They chose a town, apparently genuinely at random, it's called Dauphin, it's in Manitoba. And they said to a really large number of people in this town, from now on, we're going to give you the equivalent of £12,000 a year. Yes. Right? You don't have to. It's called a universal basic income. Disgusting. With Rutger. This with Rutger. One yeah, of my it's favourite people. Yeah, yeah. So they said to these people, there's nothing you have to do in return for it. We're never going to take it away. We just want you to have a good life, right? You're a yeah. citizen of our country. We want you to have a baseline of security. Twelve grand a year, you're not going to be able to, you know, have a lavish life. But you'll have a baseline of security. You'll know you won't be humiliated and homeless, Right. And they followed it to see the results. An amazing woman called Dr. Evelyn Forger did some of the best research on this I interviewed a lot. And what did they find? Loads of interesting things happened. But to me, the most important is there was a really big fall in all mental health problems. Mental health problems that were so severe that people had to be shut away in psychiatric hospitals fell by 9% in just three years, right? And then a right-wing government came in and got rid of it. But this tells us something. In a way, it's something that should be blindingly obvious, and in some ways is, which is if you're made to feel really financially insecure that will make you much more likely to become depressed and anxious, right? Yeah. Um, that is, you know, I think about my grandmother when my grandfather died and she had three young children. You know, in addition to the grief, she's unbelievably depressed because she thinks that she's literally not going to be able to feed her kids, right? Yeah. Giving people baselines of security, and this is interesting in relation to childhood trauma, which is a totally different thing, but we can talk about that if you want, is, as Dr. Forger, the leading expert, they said to me, That is an antidepressant, right? But what we've got is, so let's think about what's happening in Britain at the moment with the Universal Credit. The Conservative government is moving to a, in order to cut money, to pay for tax cuts for rich people, amongst other things. They are moving people who are on uh, benefits to a, as happened to someone, uh, some people close to me, they're moving them to a different form of benefits that will actually be less for a lot of people, right? Yeah. And they're doing it in a very chaotic way, so initially people were being told there's going to be five weeks in the transition where you get no benefits at all, right? Anyone who anyone who lives on benefits, that's a catastrophe, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's
0: a, a massive deal and, and to the people sitting in offices signing off these deals, it's oh, it's a few weeks. exactly For and those who are living on the breadline, and with families and young children as well, that's potentially fatal. Yeah, exactly. No exaggeration. That no, it's that's potentially literally... Fatal.
1: The suicide rate will definitely go yeah. up,
0: right? Yeah. Uh, and in
1: fact, you know, uh, people are studying whether it's going up in the places it was piloted, and I strongly suspect it will. Now, that is a cause of depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. right? And you can see... One of the things that helps us to see... It's complicated to say this, and I want to be careful how I say it. I don't think it's a coincidence that this kind of Thatcherite economics which made a lot of people more insecure, more unhappy, rose at the same time that there was a move towards extremely biological explanations for their distress, right? Right. Now, I don't think... It's just conscious on anyone's part. There's no conspiracy. Yeah. No one's sitting there going, wah-ha-ha, ha, we will make them think. Yeah. But you can see how those two things fit together nicely. Yeah. You've got a system that makes people more depressed. And humiliated. Or,
0: or let's think about one that... Again, l- in many ways, it can be... Well-intended, it can be right. We need to find a solution. Here's, oh, we have found this medical solution. Therefore, exactly, distress is genuinely it, yeah. going up. Oh, what what have we
1: got to hand? Yeah, what lever
0: yeah. is easiest to pull? But the, but
1: yeah, you know, I think about that a lot in relation to uh, what I think is the hardest form of depression, uh, hardest cause of depression. For me personally, was the hardest cause of depression to learn about. And I'm less, I'm less, uh, I'm noticed in interviews. I'm less slick talking about this, but I think the way to explain it is to tell the story of how it was discovered because. Yeah for a minute, your listeners are going to think, wait a minute, he's talking about a whole other thing, what the fuck's he talking about? But it, it, you can't, I don't think you can really understand it if you don't understand how he discovered it. Yeah. So, in the mid-1980s, a doctor who I got to know later, Dr. Vincent Felitti, was given a quite difficult job. He was in San Diego in California, where he still is, and he was asked by the big medical provider there, Kaiser Permanente, to help them solve a problem, figure out what the fuck to do. So, at that time and now, obesity was massively rising, and they're like, nothing we're trying is working, we're Giving people, you know, diet plans, we're giving them, even in some cases, personal trainers, wasn't making much difference. And they're like, this is a healthcare disaster. And they give him quite a big budget and said, just do blue skies research, figure out what the fuck we can do. So Dr. Felitti goes away and he starts to work with 250 severely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds, people who were going to die yeah. relatively soon or certainly very prematurely as a result of their extreme obesity. And he's interviewing them all. And one day he has this um, idea, which in some ways is quite a stupid idea. He asked himself, what would happen if really obese people just literally stopped eating? And we gave them like loads of like injections. So they got like vitamin C injections so they didn't get scurvy. And, you know, we went through the list of nutrients. Would they just burn through the fat supplies in their body and get down to a normal weight? So they started to do it. And in one sense, crazily, it actually initially worked. So there's a woman who I'm going to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds, right? Mind-blowing, right? Her family are telling Dr. Felitti that he saved her life. He's thrilled, she's thrilled. And then one day something happened that um, no one expected. Susan cracked, she went to KFC, she starts gorging and um, quite soon she's back at a really dangerous weight. And Dr. Felicity calls Susan in and he's like, oh, what happened? And she looks down and she's really ashamed. She's like, I don't know, I don't know. And he says, tell me about the day you, after a while he said, tell me about the day you cracked. Was there anything that happened that day that hadn't happened, you know, turns out something had happened that day that hadn't ever happened to Susan. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her, right? Not in like an awful sleazy way, quite a nice way, yeah. but a man had started trying to chat. She felt really frightened she'd gone to KFC or wherever it was and she starts just absolutely gorging and, yeah. And that was when Dr. Felitti asked he'd so it never occurred to him to ask her before, he said, when did you start to put on your weight? In her case, it was when she was um, 11. And he said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were 9 or 15 or anything that year? And she, she said, um, yeah, that's when my grandfather started raping me. He started to interview everyone in the programme and he discovered that 55% of them are put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually assaulted or abused, which is so much higher than the proportion of the general population who've been abused. He's like, this is really weird. What's going on? And and, and he's trying to figure it out. And he's talking to all these people. And and Susan put it to him really clearly. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I need to be, right? Mm. He began to see this thing that looks so irrational, obesity, and of course is really bad for you, in some of these cases actually performed a perfectly rational function, right? Yeah. A um, defense
0: mechanism that's that's logical and yeah makes sense in you know?
1: it? exactly it was protecting them yeah. from sexual attention but this was like a small group right so Dr Felitti you know it's only two hundred fifty people it's hard to draw these big such a big conclusion so Dr Felitti went to the Center for Disease Control a big body for fund medical research in the US and got money to do a massive study everyone who came for healthcare in San Diego for a whole year got given a Two questionnaires. It didn't matter what you came in for: headaches, schizophrenia, anything in between. First part said, "Did any of these ten bad things happen to you when you were a kid?" <laughs> things like physical abuse, sexual abuse, extreme cruelty, neglect. Second part asked, "Have you had any of these problems as an adult?" And initially, it was just obesity, and then they thought, "Oh no, well let's add a load of other stuff to see what, see if we anything else emerges." So they added uh, depression, suicide attempts, addiction. And at first, when the figures are calculated at the end of the year, the CDC are like, then there's been some mistake with the figures, right? For every category of childhood trauma that happened to you, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed, addicted, or have attempted suicide. But when you got into the multiple categories, it was just staggering. If you had six categories of childhood trauma happen to you, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem, right? It's very rare you get figures like this. As... um, Dr. Robert Ander, who's one of the people who worked on this research, said to me, he realised it meant we had to stop asking when we see someone who's depressed, what's wrong with you, and start asking what happened to you, right? But I remember I remember when I went to see Dr. Felitti the first time in San Diego, right? He's a t- hugely admirable human being. If you met him, you would really like him. Yeah. He's like 83, I think now, maybe 84. Lovely, good man, done this amazing research. And I remember leaving his office and literally shaking with anger, uh, to the point I was actually... I, I, I finished the interview because I was worried I would actually, like, hit him. Wow. And I was like, what the fuck is this about, right? Why are you reacting so... And I'm thinking... And it helped me to understand, thinking about this, why I remained so committed to that exclusively biological story I was told about depression by my doctor, right? I'm not an idiot. Obviously, I knew there was more going on than that. Yeah. So what, So when I was a kid... Uh, my dad had been in a different country. My mum was very ill, and I, I had to—I had an adult in my life uh, treated me in absolute horrendous ways, and and it was you know I experienced um, various forms of abuse. And it's not that if at any point in those thirteen years that I was believed this just biological story and was just drugging myself. If you had said to me, "Do you think your depression has any relationship to that abuse?" I don't think I would have said no. But I pushed it out of my mind, right? I didn't want to, I didn't want to give this individual power over me. Yeah, I didn't want to think that was still playing out in my life. But one of the reasons I'm so glad I learned about this is because of what Dr. Felitti discovered next. So if people had indicated on the form that they'd experienced some form of childhood trauma, the GP was told, next time, don't call them back in, but next time they come in, say to them something like this, I'm really sorry that when you were a child, you were sexually abused or whatever it was. That's terrible. That should never have happened to you. You should have been protected. Um, Would you like to talk about it? And 40% of people said, no, I don't want to talk about it. But 60% of people did want to talk about it. And the average amount of time they wanted to talk about it was five minutes. right? Right. And then it was randomly assigned. Some of them were told you can go and see a therapist and talk about it more. What's incredible is just those five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm so sorry, that should never happen to you. That alone led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. Wow. And the people who were assigned to a therapist were given an even, had an even bigger fall. And this fits with a whole wider body of evidence that people like Professor James Pennebaker at Florida
0: State University have discovered, which is,
1: it's not the trauma that destroys you, it's the shame about the
0: trauma. Yeah, or, and not wanting to acknowledge the impact it's had on you and the change it's had. I had um, an amazing uh, a young woman who went by the name of Mira, for her anonymity on the podcast. And she'd been brought to this country in sex trafficking. And before we got started, kind of as I said to you, I said, look, we can talk about anything you want. We don't have to talk about anything you don't want. I don't believe in the kind of almost the the grief porn of situations and thinking, oh, we need to have... But she kind of really calmly said, look, I need to talk about it because I've only just realised in the last months or year that I didn't do anything wrong. Hmm. You know, she hid her story for so long because of shame. And in this podcast, she speaks really openly and she cried, I cried. I think everyone who listened to it cried. But it was important because she was like, no, I didn't do anything wrong here. This wasn't me. I didn't know that for so long, but I shouldn't be ashamed to talk about this. I shouldn't be ashamed to be open about this because... I'm not the one that I'm not the one that did this and it took a long time for her to to acknowledge that and I think it's a fascinating thing you said there how how much of again a logical impact that childhood trauma would have on depression in later life number one obviously it's a horrendous thing to have happened but one of the things you said early on in one of the stats was the moving on the scale how medical drugs will make a 1.8 move whereas a good night's sleep could make a six point move one of the most common results of childhood trauma is night terrors and and not being able to sleep not wanting to sleep so it's completely logical that that would then have an effect on depression and on mental health so not just I'm sad because this happened. Because again, again, a lot of people want to try and own it and take control and not have that. But purely the effect on your sleep patterns, it's completely l- logical that it would then lead to depression and, and influence d- depression in later life.
1: That's totally right. And releasing shame is an antidepressant, right? Anything, yeah. Anything that reduces depression should be regarded as an antidepressant. And that needs to be a much wider category of things than we currently... Talk about, and, and it comes back to explaining to people, you know, depression, anxiety and addiction are signals. They're signals that contain meaning, right? Mm. It's telling us something that so many people in our society now... I don't think Trump and Brexit would have happened if 20 years ago we'd said, well, know, why are so many more people becoming depressed and anxious? There must be something going on here in our society, and right? The safe,
0: and, the, and the safe spaces to talk about things. I exactly. think that's been that's amplified everything in the last few years is there's so many people who don't feel comfortable talking about things because we're so quick to go that means that or you're bad or you're good or you're weak or you're strong it's it's
1: a weird process isn't it because actually that anger is itself a symptom of the loneliness and unhappiness. right james baldwin one of my favorite writers said um uh talking about kind of a uh, particular kind of right winger in the US in the 60s said, you know, the reason they're so angry is because if they weren't angry, they'd have to feel their pain. Right. Yeah. And a huge amount of this social media rage is people who are really unhappy for perfectly understandable reasons that deserve love and compassion. And it's why you really have to just consciously exempt yourself from swiping back or because actually that just creates this awful cycle that we're, that we're in. But it's about explaining to people, these are signals we need to stop insulting the signals by saying they're just a problem in your brain or they're just a sign of weakness or whatever, which they're not at all, and saying actually listening to the signals and honouring the signals because actually those signals will lead us out of this crisis. It was precisely listening to that shame that survivors of um, abuse felt that meant they could find the solution of releasing the shame. It was precisely listening to the fact that those people in that doctor surgery in east london were lonely that led to finding the solution which was let's create groups that they can join yeah. right and in a similar way i'll give you an example one of the other uh, i was talking about nine causes of depression anxiety but i'll give you another example one that i think is, is actually i think probably for your listeners probably the biggest one which is um i noticed that lots of the people i know who are depressed and anxious their depression and anxiety focuses around their work right yeah and i start to look at what's the figures for this Maybe my friends are unusual. So Gallup did the biggest study that's ever been done of attitudes towards work. A really detailed study. It took three years. What he found is 13% of us, 1-3%, like our jobs most of the time. Yeah. Uh, 63% of us are what they call sleep working. You don't like it, you don't hate it, you can't tolerate it. And 24% of people fucking hate and fear their jobs. Look at that figure, I thought, wow, that's quite striking, right? I mean, it's yeah. 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. And this thing they don't like is spreading over more and more of their day. The mm-hmm. average person now answers their first work email at 7.43am a- a. and wow. the last one at 7.15pm. So I started to think, could this be having some effect on our mental health? So I started to look at what's the evidence about this? And I, I learned that an amazing Australian social scientist who I went and then went to meet, a man called Professor Michael Marmot, had discovered in the 70s the core of what causes depression and anxiety at work. It's not the only thing, but it's the biggest factor. Mm-hmm. If you go to work and you are controlled, so you have low or no autonomy or choices about your work, you're much more likely to become depressed and anxious. Right. right? And it goes back to what we were I think it, this is going beyond him now, so he might, you know, uh, because my view. Um, I think it goes back to what we were saying about psychological needs. People need to feel their life is meaningful. Yeah. And when you can control your work, you can infuse it with meaning. When you have no control over it, it's just like, oh, what? But at first, when I was learning this, I actually misunderstood what Professor Marmot said. I remember going back to see him, and him explaining, no, you've misunderstood. So at first, I thought the implication of this was okay, you've got this 13% of people who get to have nice lives and nice jobs like you and me, and everyone else is condemned to that. Because, you know, shit, You know, there are some yeah. jobs that have to be done that are not going to be so pleasant, right? And I thought about my brother, who's an Uber driver. I thought about my dad, who was a bus driver. I thought about my grandmother, whose job was to clean toilets. I'm like, well, hang on, are you saying that they're just condemned to... And he explained to me, no, it's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. Yeah. And it turns out there are solutions to that, right? There's a, a big change we could do that would definitely reduce depression and anxiety and is not impossible right and I learned about it at first people are going to think I'm saying you should all go and individually do this and they're going to think I can't do that don't worry I'm not saying you should individually try to do it right now if, unless of course if you can yeah. so I went into a woman called Meredith Keogh in Baltimore and Meredith worked in an office before I met her and she used to go to bed every Sunday night just sick with anxiety right She had an office job. She would tell you it wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or harassed or anything. But it was really monotonous. She couldn't bear thought, God, this is going to be the next 40 years of my life. I can't bear it, right? Mm. And one day with her husband, Josh, she decided to do this quite bold thing. Josh had worked since he was a teenager in bike stores in Baltimore, which is, you know, controlled work, very insecure, low paid. You don't even get holiday pay or anything, Mm. right? Or sick pay. Sometimes the boss can give it to you if they're nice, but it's not a guarantee. Right. And Josh and his friends were working in this bike store, and one day they had this kind of sitting there, and they just thought, what does our boss actually do? Right? They quite liked their boss, he wasn't a terrible person, but they're like we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money, right? This yeah, is what's going on yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So they decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own that worked on a different principle. So where they had worked before was a corporation, right? Most people listening to this will work in corporations. It's actually a relatively recent human invention. You know how it works. You've got the boss at the top he's like the commander of an army. You obey him or you get out. And sometimes yeah. the commander of the army is nice and wants to cooperate. And sometimes he's an arsehole and, you know, whatever. They decided they were going to set up a shop that worked on a different principle. It's an older idea. So their shop is a democratic cooperative. They don't have a boss. So they make the decisions about the business together at meetings once every few weeks. In practice, they agree almost all the time. They share out the money, the profits. They share out the good tasks and the shitty tasks so no one gets stuck with the shitty tasks. Um, And they control their workplace together. So if they have an idea... But how to do things differently, they can try to persuade everyone else. They have agency, they control their work. And one of the things that was totally fascinating, spending time in their bike store, which is called Baltimore Bicycle Works, and talking to them, and this completely fits with Professor Marmot's research, is how many of them talked about how they had been depressed and anxious before, but were not depressed and anxious now. Yeah. And it's not like they used to fix bikes and now they're like Beyonce's backing singers, yeah, right? Yeah. They fix bikes before, they fix bikes now. What's the difference? Now they have control over their work. And I remember sitting at Baltimore Bicycle Works and thinking about how many people I know who are depressed and anxious, who would feel really differently if they knew that tomorrow they were going to a workplace that they controlled with their colleagues, Mm -hmm. where no one got stuck all the time with the shittiest tasks, where you got to to have a say, where you had as much say as everyone else, where if there has to be a boss, they're accountable to you, not just you being accountable to them. That's a very different way of spending most of our waking hours. There is no reason... We should be organising our society so most of us are spending most of our lives in institutions that make us depressed. Yeah. We don't have to live like that. If you think about Baltimore, it's a slightly pretentious way of putting it, but I remember thinking, well, Baltimore Bicycle Works is more like the kind of cooperative tribe that we evolved to live in. Yeah, You don't yeah, want to be romantic yeah, yeah. about the past, there are plenty of bad things about those tribes, but yes, of the... Course. the, the, the than, than a corporation is, right? Yeah. Corporations is actually unusual. People are soaking up humiliation. You feel you're low status. Feeling low status is a big cause of depression. And again, that's about saying to people, if you're depressed at your job, you know, maybe you're right to be depressed at your job. Yeah. Maybe this is an inhuman system that is not treating you well. And you deserve better as a human being than to live your life doing something where you're, you know controlled and feel humiliated and we can change now that seems like a very big thing and it is a very big thing but you know we're all the beneficiaries of huge and big changes. The weekend was a crazy, radical idea when it was first proposed yeah. by Trade unions. You know, um, my gra- this is the women listening don't need me to mansplain this, but you know, my grandmothers were not allowed to have bank accounts once they got married. Right, yeah. that's not that long ago, right? Yeah. I'm gay. I didn't even hear the concept of gay marriage yeah. till I was 21. Now yeah. I can get married, right? So we're all the beneficiaries of these incredible changes. These changes can happen when we band together and fight for them. But I think a key first step is acknowledging. We feel like shit, not because there's something broken in each of us individually, but because this way of living doesn't meet our needs. Yeah. And we all
0: deserve better. It's, it's fascinating. There's th- 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 three things. I'm, I I love it when it's a podcasting conversation I'm excited to, to hear <laughs> and learn from, because rather than interrupt, I'm thinking of th- three different <laughs> p- points I want to br- bring up. And the first is just, I had a Tom Robinson on the podcast a while back, not the bad Tommy Robinson, Tom (laughs) Robinson, the musician. I'd be interested to hear both. Yeah. yeah. And and it was, it was crazy to hear, to sit down with a human that I've been on his radio show. He's a living being and hear him say that when he realized he was gay, it wasn't frowned upon. It was illegal. And that shows you how much of a time span these things can take to, to change. That's in one man's lifetime from, and his own personal experiences. So that was, was a fascinating thing to see and a motivating thing to go. All oh, right, we it shouldn't be, and it's one of the things that that Rooker speaks about a lot in in Utopia for, for realists is that this might all sound lofty, but look at how realistic it is. Look at history. Look at how we can ch- change things. Um, the thing that hits me a lot about we spoke earlier about the the almost the justified anger or the, or, or the natural anger, the anger that is built up from your own depression or from your own kind of sadness of misery that's untreated. And I see that so, so much with online these days, with the fury that people have when they see that a YouTuber has earned X amount or Twitch streamers are earning money from just playing games. And I had the same reaction the first time I saw Twitch. I was like, you're just playing games? Is that a real job? That should be celebrated. That should be the target to to, to, to have jobs that you enjoy and are passionate about and that other people enjoy. But we've built this society that if you're not m- miserable in your job, it's not a real job. Yeah. Is is that real work? And that's kind of, that's terrible to think of that, you know, and, and, and it, again, it seems to come completely from that's how we think jobs are meant to be. We've accepted that it should be misery, right?
1: Totally. And I think one of the mistakes, I'm a lefty, as I'm sure you can tell, One of the mistakes I think some people on our side make, my side make is, and I would include myself in this, I make this mistake still and I made it a lot in the past, is actually there's always evidence when people are frightened, they will become more conservative, right? Yeah. Fear and pessimism make people conservative. Hope and empowerment make people more left-wing. And this is true even if you are naturally quite right-wing or naturally quite left-wing, right? And too often... We communicate by trying to make people more frightened and more angry, right? And actually, it relates to what we the most important thing we can do at the moment is give people back a knowledge of how powerful they are. So, think about give you an example. You talked about, um, you know, um, uh, the non evil Tommy Robinson. um, (laughs) That, you know, my friend Andrew Sullivan, whenever I get pessimistic, and I do sometimes, and it's hard not to in the climate win at times. Think about my friend Andrew Sullivan, right? So Andrew is a, a lot of people listening will know his work. He's a, a British American writer and journalist. And in 1993, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive at the absolute height of the AIDS crisis. Loads of his friends had died. There was no treatment, no good treatment on the horizon, as far as he knew. And so he, he left his job. He was the editor of the New Republic, and he and he. And he goes to this little town in Cape Cook or Provincetown to die. Mm. And he decides he's going to do one last thing before he dies. He's going to write a book about a crazy utopian idea that no one's ever written a book about. And he's like, obviously, I'll never live to see this. No one alive will live to see it. But maybe someone down the line is going to pick up my book. They'll pick up this idea. The idea he wrote the first book ever about was gay marriage. And when I get depressed, I try to imagine going back in time to Provincetown in 1994, And saying to Andrew, okay, I've got a bit of news for you, Andrew. You're not going to believe me, 23 years from now, A, you'll be alive. Good news. He would have found that impossible to believe. Uh, B, Uh, you're going to be married to a man. That'll be legal. C, I'm going to be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book you're writing when it makes it mandatory for every state in the United States to legalise gay marriage. And the next day, you'll get an invitation to go and have dinner at the White House, which will be lit up in the colours of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. And by the way, the president who invites you is going to be black, right? Yeah, that would have sounded like the most ludicrous science fiction. That happened, right? Andrew's there; he's still writing, he's still fighting, right? And to me, that's like you've got to remember: impossible things happen if you fight for them with other people and make them possible. Yeah. We're living in a system that and actually it's interesting. If you think about one of the other, I was thinking about this when we talk about the internet as well. One of the other causes of depression and anxiety. And again, I think along with childhood trauma, this was actually the hardest one for me because it was the one that I could see most playing out in my own life. Right. So everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. Right. As uh-huh. you can tell from my chins, i got a bit of a weakness <laughs> myself. Um, not quite as bad as it used to be. Um, there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. So for thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and showing off, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said. (laughs) Right? Um, That's a paraphrase, right? Um, But weirdly, no one had actually scientifically investigated this until an amazing man I got to know called professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox college in Illinois. I interviewed him a lot. Um, and Professor Kasser has shown two really interesting things. So, how Actually, I would explain it slightly differently. So uh, there's a little prelude to, to, to understand. I think it's useful. So every human being, everyone listening to your show, is a mixture of two kinds of motives, right? So imagine you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, right? Mm-hmm. That's called an intrinsic motive. You're, you're playing the piano because it's something you love. You're not doing it to get anything out of it. That is the thing yeah. you want to be doing, right? Okay, now imagine you play the piano... I don't know, to post the clips on Instagram to show off or in a dive bar to pay the rent or because your parents are really pressuring you because they want you to be piano maestro or whatever. That would be an extrinsic motive or junk motive to play the piano, right? It's not... You're not doing it because it's something you love. You're doing it to get something out of it, right? Yeah. You're doing it one remove. Yeah. Now, obviously, all hum- we're all a mixture of both, right? You've got to be. Yeah. But what Professor Cash has showed is two really interesting things. Firstly... As a society, we have become much more driven by these extrinsic values. we become much more driven by the desire to show off, to boast, to display our status, Mm -hmm. to gather money. And he's also shown the more you are driven by these junk values, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious. For many reasons, and I go through them in, in, in Lost Connections, but one of them is this just isn't a way of living that meets our needs, right? It's the most banal kind of cliche you can say to explain to someone... You will not lie on your deathbed and think about all the things you bought and all the likes you got in Instagram. Mm-hmm. You will think about moments of meaning and purpose and connection. But as Professor Kasser puts it, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect those those needs, right? Yeah. The, 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 there's one experiment. It was done before Professor Kasser. I think it's lovely little experiment that just reveals how this plays out for all of us. You get a group of five-year-olds mm-hmm. and you split. It was done in 1976. you split them into two groups. First group is shown two adverts for whatever the equivalent to Dora the Explorer was in 1960s. Right. I can't yeah. remember what it is now, but it was a toy. Yeah. A specific toy, shown two ads. Second group is shown no ads. Then they say to all the kids, okay, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a really nice boy who doesn't have the toy from the advert, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy. The kids who saw the advert adverts overwhelmingly chose to play with the nasty boy who had the toy, and the kids who hadn't chosen to play with advert... Chose the nice boy who didn't have the toy. So just two adverts primed those kids to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of joy and connection, right? We have all seen more than two adverts a day. We are all in... I mean, more 18-month-old children recognise the McDonald's M and know what it means than know their own surname, right? So we are immersed in a machine that is constantly telling us, if you don't feel good, there is a solution. Buy, spend, make more. Buy more, spend more. Advertising is like the ultimate frenemy, right? It's saying like, you know, Pip, I really like you. I think you're a great guy. If only you didn't stink so much. I mean, I really like you, right? There is a solution to your stinking. You can see... But of course, it's... And that's the kind of um, sharp edge of the spear of this whole consumerist system, right? Which is, which would collapse if we didn't feel inadequate. Because it's built around getting us to buy not just the things we need, but loads and loads of things we don't need. Yeah. We don't have to live by these junk values, right? Professor Cass has shown lots of ways how you can move your values away from these junk values. I'm happy to talk about that if you want. But the, to me, this is this is so important and, and, and really relates to what what we were saying, both about the internet and all these other things, because part of the problem is we have been trained and primed to seek satisfaction, meaning, and, and happiness in all the wrong places. Yeah. And then we are puzzled when we do those things that it hasn't
0: worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's it. Yeah, it's it's a, f- a fascinating one because, as someone who for so long thought the threat of advertising was, I, w- I wasn't that big a deal, but because I've always felt it doesn't really influence me that much. In the last year, Instagram has figured me out, <laughs> um, and it's found the things I want. And what literally, there was about five ad placed adverts in a row that I was like, oh yeah. And and it's I'd never clicked on one, and then I clicked on one once, and that's all it took to just have my tastes just nailed. And what
1: was the thing? What are they, beard it, products? The,
0: or? The, <laughs> no, the, the thing that I bought the first time, it was actually a gift for someone, and it was these little dice that have skulls in them. <laughs> right. Really odd. But from then on, it's been pitching me loads of, J- of japanese clothing that i've just <laughs> gone crazy for. in fact we just started discussing this this <clears> podcast <throat> because of realizing it's 2019 the the year of akira so so, so it's, somehow it's made it's realized oh i'm thinking of akira a lot i'm going to pitch you loads of clothes that are similar <laughs> to what the gangs wear in akira and mate i've bought jackets i've bought <laughs> stuff that i'm never going to need or never going to wear the jeans i'm wearing now are identical to the jeans I had before, but they've got a little fleece l- l- layer inside that, that you'd never oh know. God, is it
1: super comfy? It's
0: just super comfy and warm. I've always worn it. the same jeans in the winter, summer, and <laughs> I saw them and I thought, you know what? They look exactly like the jeans I've got, except the winter version that no one will know. They did. <laughs> and they've just got me. I now feel like I'm planting it in other people's uh, feeds and they're all going to be buying them. But, but yeah
1: that, so that's not you see that is um, actually one of the useful uses of this which is it's matched you with a product that you actually has made your life better but most of it is actually not like that Mo- it's very my friend and Dave- again it's,
0: it's, 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 how, it's how our society has become though is that we all we've romanticised and idolised the idea of a deal mm-hmm. and not really it's something I argue with my dad about the most and the easiest example I'll give is I really got snappy with me came around um, a little while ago and I was getting pizzas in for us and I, I said to him, oh, oh, what pizza do you want? And he said, oh, oh, what deals are on? Right. And I said, what what pizza do you want? <laughs> and he was like, oh, are there any deals on I was like, "Right." just stop. Tell me what you want. I'll find if there's a deal that fits and then we'll right. get something and it's a good thing. But it's that mentality of rather than what you want, what are the deals, which negates it being a deal because it's That's making it. you have something you didn't want in the first place. Oh, this is so
1: essentially because Professor Kasser after discovering all this stuff about junk values, wanted to figure out what can we do about it. And did this totally fascinating experiment. It's with a guy called Nathan Dungan. And Nathan is a um, financial advisor in Minneapolis. And Nathan started getting called in by schools. So he would advise people on budgeting, basically. Yeah. And and he's called in by these high schools, like in middle-class areas, not fancy areas, not poor areas. Um, And they said, look, we've got this big problem, right? These kids are becoming obsessed with getting, like, the latest Nike sneakers or, like, the latest logo goods like logo clothes and they were really going mental and getting really angry at their parents if they couldn't get it and they're like could you come in and explain budgeting so he comes in he's talking to teenagers about watching and they haven't got a fucking bit of interest in budgeting yeah. And quite quickly he realizes all right th- there's something going on here like he'd talk about budgeting and they go no, you don't understand my life will be nothing without these and he's <laughs> yeah. like okay there's something going on here that's not about budgeting right so he-, he hooked up with professor kasser and they did this really interesting experiment it was um I how long it took i think it was four months, I might, get that, might be getting that detail wrong, but basically what happened is you get a teenager and their parent, the teenager who'd an interest in these goods. They come in and they meet, I think it was once a week, uh, details are in the book, I might be getting that detail wrong as well, and it's very simple. Firstly, they meet, first few meetings, they took, they, they, they're told, just make a list of everything you've got to have, right? And obviously people put food and water and all that stuff first, mm-hmm. but quite quickly the teenager would put, I've got to have the latest nike sneakers quite often the parents would put something that no one actually needs to have right and then they go nathan would say well tell me about um it's all monitor scientifically say tell me about how things would be different if you had these sneakers what would be different in your life and people were quite aware about they'd say well i'd be accepted by the group people would envy me i'd have status whatever it was and it doesn't take long for people to say it out loud for them to go oh where did where did that feeling come from, right? right? And they would talk about advertising. They would look at ads for these things. They'd show how that feeling they had that they believed was their deepest conviction had actually been constructed by these companies, right? So they would start by taking apart the junk values. But to me, the most interesting bit is what would happen next. So then at the next meeting, they say, what do you actually think is important in life? What is actually meaningful, yeah. right? What has actually given you joy? And different people said that some people it was playing music. Some people, it was like going out into the woods. Some people, it was like, writing, it, whatever it was. And say, okay, well, how could you build into your life doing more of those things that you actually find meaningful and less of questing after this kind of, these junk values? And this was monitored. And what's interesting was just having a weekly meeting where you talked about this. We don't have these conversations in our culture very much. Just a weekly meeting where you talked about it led to a really significant shift in people's values, which we know correlates with lower depression and anxiety, right? And I think that tells you something really interesting. It's the same as Tricotti in Berlin, right? I love those people in Cotty. I think they're incredible, but in some ways they are not exceptional, right yeah that hunger was just beneath the surface this is I keep thinking about my book about depression that in some ways, I feel like I'm giving people permission to know what they knew in their hearts all along yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no
0: you know but that affirmation is 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 a powerful th- thing right and as we're kind of at the 90 minute mark i have to have to wrap things up and not to end on a really heavy note but i mentioned my mate jamie if he'd known other people were going through that he wouldn't have given himself that deadline of here's when i need to be fixed by it's that it's that awareness that look but even this is all inside you exactly but it's someone saying it's it's real because again we're so led to believe the only solution has to be something that you can buy or something that you can be p- prescribed or something like that, when in reality, opening up the amount that you can do internally and, and, and in groups of friends and things like that is, yeah, it's a hard one to just accept. But, but if if go- you just thought of it, you'd probably go, well, that's that's silly. That's not what it is. But I would go even further,
1: right? i would be thinking this about a lot because there's a young a person in my life who I love who who is very depressed and having a rough time at the moment. And I would go in further with your friend, Jamie, to me, the most important thing is saying, this is not primarily a problem in you, right? It's not a coincidence. There's loads more people feeling like you feel now than there were 30 years ago, right? Something is happening to lots of people. And it goes exactly back to that core message, that thing that the World Health Organization is telling us that leading medical body in the world, that thing that that, that those Cambodian doctors told Dr. Summerfield absolutely instinctively, your pain makes sense, right? Yeah. Because once, once, once people know their pain makes sense, that it's there for a reason, that they're not... And I want to stress, there are real biological factors that can make you more vulnerable to these things. Of course, Biology is real and it plays a significant role in some depressions and a large role in some others. Um, but but once you know that it's not just biological, that it's got causes in our lives, then you can begin to build the system yeah. where we start to deal with those things that are happening. And this isn't some wacky abstract idea. This is the view of the leading medical bodies in the world. But yeah. also, I have seen people doing it, right? Yeah. The last third of Lost Connections is people who have done this all over the world, doctors, scientists, people, just ordinary citizens. And, and and I think this is the most important thing that I, of all the things that I learned on this journey that have helped me is to say that when you don't feel good, when you feel acute pain, that is a signal of something meaningful. And it's excruciatingly painful to trace that back to its source. It's not a pleasant feeling, But if you can find the source of your pain, um, which you largely find, by the way, through interacting with other people, not by just going off on your own, it's like if you haven't got an accurate map of a city, you will never find your way out of that city, Yeah. right? Yeah. What we've got to do is two stages. We've got to build maps that help us to understand why this is happening to us. And then we've got to build the solutions together. And those things are happening in different parts of the world. And in a way, what we've had is um, for 30 years from too many people with the best of intentions in almost every case, an overly simplistic story and an overly narrow set of solutions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to totally get rid of that story because there was some truth in it. And I don't want to get rid of the solutions that were offered. What I want to do is broaden the story, open it up to include all the best science and all the best solutions. And there's there's good evidence that that is the best the best path forward and we 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 can do that and i think about your your friend who deserved that message i think about myself when i was an extremely traumatized and disturbed teenager going to my doctor i deserved that message mm. and it's not that com- it's not a complicated message you could explain yeah. to anyone in britain in 5 minutes right obviously finding the solutions is more complicated they need more support but, but and and they need paths that deal with it but but, but people deserve truthful accounts of their depression that genuinely help them find their way out of stigma and genuinely help them find their way to solutions. And that's about helping them. It's not about, obviously you can't just dump the information on people and expect them to go out and do it themselves. Yeah. It's got to be, they've got to be given these insights in the context of support structures that build love and support and security, stability and recognition and, and, and a whole range of antidepressants, some of which may be chemical and yeah. will be chemical for some reason and some of which are all the loads of the other kinds of antidepressants that I write about in the book that we've touched on. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, completely. You've got to see the meaning in it. Yeah. If you don't see the meaning in it, or if you actively deny the meaning in it by saying it's purely biological,
0: then people can't find their way out. And and, and broadening is the perfect way to put it, because people, particularly in the social media world, where you commit to one casual tweet and then you cling to it tooth and nail, um, and yeah, with your dying breath broadening is key because it's not saying that this solution is wrong it's saying it's part of it's one of it's a potential solution rather than medicine's wrong this is right like, okay let's 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 open it all up because but that's what people s- seem to st- struggle with a lot It's going, no here's what i've been trained to believe or brought up to believe therefore i, I need to stick with that no and, and i understand that conflict
1: because i felt that conflict yeah. and it's a big part of the journey that i went on but I think, and I would definitely criticise myself, previous behaviour for this, as someone who had been very angry online a lot of the time, I think a huge amount of social media anger is a... Sim- Look, if you have a society of lonely and isolated people who spend most of their time being controlled at work, who've been taught that money is about life is about money and status and showing off that is going to be a deeply unhappy society and yeah. culture. And people will look for outlets to express that pain and rage. And, you know, it's worth saying, rage is a powerful but extremely short-acting antidepressant, right? There's a real pleasure in saying to someone who you think is wrong, you're a cunt, yeah. right? Yeah. Fuck you, you cunt, right? Yeah. I can even feel as I say it, my yeah. Little, yeah. A little endorphin kick. But usually it's um, it's a bit like an ecstasy come down, isn't it? You know, you... you there's a little kick, and then you feel worse afterwards. Yeah. And I think too often we engage with social media, Ray. Right? Actually, I think a lot of political arguments are like this—not just social media. I think social media is the worst end of it. How would I put it? I think what you've got is the underlying well of unmet psychological needs and deep pain, and that bubbles up into like surface phenomena, like I don't know, calling Lena Dunham fat on Twitter or whatever horrible thing right. it is, right? Yeah. And too often, what we do is we engage with that one percent foam at the top, and we go, "Why are you calling Lena Dunham fat?" That's not, that, or or even like I don't know, um, Brexit will be great and will make the country much better, and you go, "Well, I think if you look at these studies, you, you're engaging with it at the wrong." I'm not saying we shouldn't have those arguments; yeah, we should, and yeah. I believe in a strong, vigorous policy debate about Brexit, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But and I'm strongly in favour of Remain, but the, the the but in a way, I think a huge amount of the time. That is just deploying your energy in completely the wrong place. And yeah. very often, if what you're doing is someone is expressing rage as a temporary antidepressant because they're in real pain, and you come along and just go, you're a cunt, or you're thick, or you try to humiliate them, yeah, very often, what that does is actually deep in their pain. I, you know, there's a good example yeah. of this. And, and is one of the more defensible uses of social media rage. I won't name the person because I don't want to attack because someone I like very much and I think is a force for good in British public life. But um, I, I really thought about this. And I thought, you know, the thing I would have said in the past as well. I thought, oh, this is not, this is not right. So uh, about a month ago, I'm for, um, rough on dates, but Tommy Robinson organised some march in central London, right? Yeah. And Tommy Robinson, I think is saying hateful vile things, you know, claiming that Sadiq Khan, is the excellent democratic Leader mayor of London, is a kind of, you know, secret or I mean, just really terrible, ugly yeah. things, right, about a vulnerable group in our society. And so, like, I don't forget the figures, but something like 3,000 people turn out as part of Tommy Robinson's protest, and, like, 20,000 people turn out to counter-protest, exactly as it should be. I'm, those people who counter-protest should be really proud of themselves. I'm strongly in favour of them. And that night, someone I, like, tweeted something like, Tommy Robinson has been completely humiliated today. And if I was him, I'd never show my face in public again. Mm. And I thought, oh no, that's not what we want. Yeah. We don't, and I, I don't say the same sense of superiority as so I said, I would have said that in the past. And I said worse things in the past. So don't get me wrong. I'm not yeah. smugly <laughs> yeah. standing over this person. We don't want our, our opponents to be humiliated and broken and to shut up and never speak again. We want them to change their minds. Yeah. We want yeah. them to open their hearts.
0: Right. And actually, if you it's, it's, it's humiliation that leads to shock results like brexit because exactly. people are ashamed to speak about their concerns which you would argue are inaccurate concerns and wrong but it's because of that that lack of ability it's because of humiliation that all right all you're seeing online is the triumphant people and yeah. you're not seeing those who haven't had their mind changed they've just gone quiet i think you're
1: exactly right that the Humiliation is the fuel for this, re- for what's happening. Yeah. So if you respond by humiliating them more, you may have had a temporary victory, which I absolutely applaud and I'm strongly in favour of, which yeah. is there were more people to protest than there were. Yeah. But y- that is storing up more rage and humiliation. And I think, and this is not a kind of hippie oh, we just need to love and hug our opponents. I don't think that. I think Tommy Robinson should be vigorously opposed. Yeah. But you can oppose people in a spirit of love that says you are doing something that is harming these people who we will protect and care, and you won't be able to get to these people without getting past us, right? And that's really important to say. But you can also say, you are harming yourselves by being like this. A life driven by hatred and paranoia and demonising people is terrible for you, right? One of my friends is a jazz musician called Daryl Davis, who's been, I'm going to write about in the future, but he's an African-American musician and he... Because um, a lot of people hear that and think, oh, you're never going to change the minds of these people. Daryl spent a lot of time meeting with members of the, the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, and he's persuaded huge numbers of people to leave the Ku Klux right, Klan, yeah. right? Now, don't get me wrong, that's not the only way that people should be opposing the Klan. There's a whole range of ways, yeah. and that's Daryl is a kind of unique individual in many ways. But there's loads of evidence that messages of loving... You can oppose people with messages of love and compassion that leave it open for them to change, right? Yeah. That if we're not changing people, we can't prevail, right? Yeah. Because yeah. actually most people don't agree with us on lots of things, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we don't, if if our message is, if you don't change, you will be humiliated and broken and actually we want you to shut up and never speak again. Well, no one is going to say, you know what? You're right. I've been humiliated. I'll shut up and never speak again, right? Or very few people will say that. And actually we don't want them to have that life. We don't want them to go into a corner and yeah. die, right? We want them to, and we need to open up paths for people to open their hearts and publicly change. And way too much of our discourse is going in the exact opposite way. So I saw someone um, the other day on social media who uh, I forget who it is now, but someone who'd been a prominent supporter of Trump going like, actually, I think Trump's done a really bad thing here. And the response wasn't, you're moving in our direction. Great. Yeah. Thank you. It was... Now you fucking think so. Well, why do not you do it with all these times, you can't? Yeah, yeah. Or I think about a reaction to someone I really admire, um, Mehdi Hassan, the journalist, right. um, who, who's a, a, a absolutely fantastic uh, writer, thinker, broadcaster. People have seen clips of him on Al Jazeera. Yeah, He's brilliant. Uh, I don't agree with him on everything, but he, he's one of those writers, even when I don't agree with him, you're like, I'm really glad I read this. Yeah. This is great. And Mehdi wrote a great piece years ago, wrote a really good piece about... Uh, having had homophobic feelings and having grown up with homophobic feelings and trying to kind of consciously challenge them, right? And loads of people's response was, oh, maybe Hassan admits he's a fucking homophobe. And you're like, no, you fools. When someone is moving in your direction, open your arms, even if they haven't moved 100% in your direction, right? This is... People who are snarling and embody hatred are not very appealing. (laughs) you know, completely. Um, And I guess you know, a big part of the solution to our depression, anxiety and addiction crises are these models of love and compassion. I think about places I went to, we didn't get to talk about it, but chasing the scream, my book about addiction, you know, places that had addiction policies based on shaming and punishing people. Yeah. Their addiction crises got worse and worse. Right. I went out with a group of women in Arizona who were made to go out on a chain gang wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public mock them. Right. Yeah. Um, And what happens, those women are even more traumatised and even more addicted when they leave. And I went to Portugal where they had a massive drug problem and then they decriminalised all drugs. All drugs All all drugs. all drugs. From cannabis to crack, everything. And they took all the money they used to spend on shaming and punishing people and spent it on really practical support to turn their lives around. And what happened? Massive fall in addiction, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that goes not just for addiction to drugs, but exactly what we're talking about. Addiction to rage, addiction to abuse... It's about dealing with the underlying reasons why people are upset. And these people are upset for very good reasons, right? Whoever is there on Twitter, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning going, at Scroobius Pip, you're a cunt, fuck you, is probably sitting somewhere where their life is really bad. Now, that's not a good thing for them to have done. And I'm not, I'd urge them not to do it. Of course. But their, their pain makes sense, right? They're feeling that way for a reason. And if we respond by going, you've revealed that you are, in fact, a cunt yourself, yeah, I'm yeah, not. Yeah. My friend Peter Marshall wants to write a memoir called Just No, You're the Cunt. <laughs> but, like, the, you know, instead of saying, No, You're the Cunt, but, and being trapped in this cycle of humiliation, we have to be giving people paths out of this cycle of rage and humiliation into meaningful lives and
0: love and compassion, yeah. right? And there are ways we can do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've got to wrap things up now because yeah. my park had all. or run out but I mean we could have talked for hours and along with your books I'd recommend people check out your TED talk and the Guardian article you did obviously we've not gone into addiction much but I love the the re-approach to how we look at addiction in in your Guardian articles as there's tons to to look at but uh, uh, where can people Keep up to date with everything. Yeah, on... so I get told off by my publishers, that I
1: say this so they gave me a ridiculous blurb to say that makes me sound like a psychopathic narcissist, so I'm not going to read it out. But um, anyone wants to know where they can get the book or the audio book of Lost Connections from a book about depression, they go to www.thelostconnections.com. Uh, they can also take a quiz to see how much they know about a lot of the things we've been talking about. They Fantastic. can listen to audio of all the people we've been talking about, the interviews. Also, you can go to for the book about addiction. It's www.chasingthescream as in ah scream. dot com, and uh, you can see all my social media shit there. Although I had a weird experience with an interview a while ago where, at the end, the person said like, "What's your Twitter? What's your Facebook?" and then they were like, "What's your Snapchat?" and I was like. I am a 39-year-old man, right? The only 39-year-old men on Snapchat are definitely paedophiles, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That, like, So, no, I will yeah, not find me on Snapchat, but <laughs> I've got a long way to get the message out, but I'm not
0: fucking going to Snapchat, That's right? fair, that's fair. Well, thank you very much oh, for your thank time. You. It's, it's been really an absolute pleasure. That. It's flown by. Thank you. Oh,
1: totally joy. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Scooby's Picks Distraction the Pieces. There we go. That was episode 258 of the Distraction Pieces podcast. What a great guest. I recommend all of his books. Everything uh, uh, we talked about there I recommend his TED Talk. There's a lot of stuff that you can get from your hand. Yeah, online. There's there is TED Talks. There is He's guested on a few different uh, news shows in America and things like that that are all on YouTube. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that and I hope it sparked a discussion. It's another one. that It's not the most famous guest in the world. But I think the content has got great value there. So, so I hope you all shout about it. And I hope I see you all on Friday as well with uh, the next episode of the Distraction Pieces Podcast. A bonus episode with Winston Duke. So until then, I will see you on Friday. Ta-ta.